Uh, The pop singer Prince died last year, aged 57. He left behind an estate worth $300 million, a dozen properties worth $25 million, gold bars, cash, musical instruments, as well as copyrights and trademarks on his music. The problem was he died without a will, with no wife or children who survived him. So in the months after his death, all sorts of people came forward claiming a share of the inheritance. Finally last month, the US judge ruled that his six half-siblings were entitled to share the inheritance. All that wealth shared out among the family. As we look at Ephesians this morning, there's a similar thought. Sharing the inheritance. I wonder if, after the judge's ruling, he sat down with the family and went through the inheritance. I wonder if he said to everyone, here's what you get, and what you get, here's the keys to the mansions, here's the bank vault combination, here's the copyrights on all the music. You see, here in Ephesians chapter 1, that's exactly what's happening. Paul's explaining the inheritance. Have a quick glance down the page there. Verse 3, we have every spiritual blessing. Verse 5, we've been adopted as sons. It's been freely given to us, verse 6. Verse 7, the riches of God's grace have been lavished on us. Verse 11, chosen. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. And finally in verse 18, Paul prays that they would know the hope to which he's called them. Uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the inheritance that he's just been explaining to them. Before we go any further though to think about this inheritance, I want to stop for a moment and think about two little words that you don't really notice, but they make a huge difference in how you understand the book of Ephesians. Us and you, or we and you. To make sense of Ephesians, it helps to notice that it's a letter written to two distinct groups, us and you. And as you run your eye through Ephesians chapter 1, you see that it's we or us all the way through. So verse 2, God our Father. Verse 3, our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in the heavenly realms for he chose us, verse 4, in him we have redemption, verse 7, in accordance with the grace he lavished on us. It's all the way through, it's us. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, when you're writing a letter, we could mean me and you, it could mean everyone. Except when we get to verse 13 where we read, in him you also were included. You were marked in him with a seal. And the pattern continues into chapter 2 that we didn't read. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Verse 5 says, we were dead in our transgressions too. And so it continues. So who's the we and who's the you? Well, I want to suggest the two groups were obvious if you were in the Ephesian church. Because you read about it back in Acts chapter 19 when... Paul first planted that church. He's in Ephesus and he preaches to the Jews for three months in the synagogue. And then in verse 9, for two more years, he moves next door and he preaches to the Greeks 
in the hall of Tyrannus. And so you've got a church in Ephesus made up of both of these groups. Jews like Paul, that's the us, and then there's the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that's, that's like you and me, and Paul says that's you lot. And you can see that's what Paul's thinking if you get down to verse 11 of chapter 2 and Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and then he goes on to describe what's happened to them. We looked at that passage a few weeks ago. And if we keep reading into chapter 3, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then finally we get to chapter 3, verse 6. It's the point of all the us and the you. And Paul says, The mystery that God's finally revealed is that through the Gospel, the Gentiles, that's you, are heirs together with Israel. That's us. Members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So can you see what he's saying in chapters 1 and 2? We're heirs together. That's extraordinary. We're sharing the inheritance. Sharing between two groups who, down through history, have had nothing to do with each other. And Paul wants to make a big deal out of Jew and Gentile sharing together because it's not some minor point of theology. It's got practical implications every time they meet for church. Two groups of Christians listening to Paul's letter, the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, different in so many ways and they're learning how to get on, how to overcome cultural differences and move beyond misunderstandings, how to eat the same food, how to let go of things that don't matter and how to work out what things do matter. And Paul wants them to know, first and most important, they're sharing an inheritance. And for some of his readers, some of those people in the church, maybe that word sharing is quite a shock. Because if you want to stick with the picture that we began with, imagine that princes, half, six half-siblings, were told that the courts had found six more long-lost cousins or relatives and that they had to share their inheritance. So now it had to go between 12. I can imagine that would take some getting used to and there might be some resentment and some arguments. And that's the situation the Jewish Christians are in. They've had the privilege of being God's chosen people all on their own, out of all the nations around them. Their whole focus had been on being separate from the Gentiles. And now they're following God's promised Messiah, Jesus, and Jesus has called out people from the nations to share in all of his promises. And as happy as they are for the Gentiles, well, it just takes them getting used to. Imagine what it would have been like for white Christians after apartheid finished in South Africa and now they were sitting next to their black brothers in church. Knowing with their heads and their hearts that God had chosen them, but it was just strange. Wanting to accept with it, and but just not sure how to do that. That's sort of what it was like for the Jewish Christians. And so that's the background. Jewish and Gentile Christian sitting next to each other somewhat uncomfortably 
Paul reads out the judge's ruling, outlining the inheritance. So verse 3 he begins, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, so there's the summary statement. That's the title at the head of the, of the will that's being read. God should be blessed because he's blessed us with everything. Every benefit we have comes from God because we are in Christ, because we're connected to Jesus. But straight away it's not clear who Paul's talking about, the us. Is that us Jews or is that all of us, Jews and Gentiles? I think he's probably talking about all the Christians but it's also possible he's just thinking of the Jews. But then he gets more specific, verse 4, listing the spiritual blessings. If you're in Christ, then all of these things are yours as well. First, you've been chosen. But unlike being chosen for a sporting team, it's got nothing to do with you. Verse 4 says that God chose you before the creation of the world. Your abilities, your qualities, your success, your birthplace, it's irrelevant. If you're a Christian, you've been chosen for a purpose. You've been chosen to be holy and blameless. You're set apart to be different and pure and clean. That's what the destination God had picked out beforehand for you. That's what the word predestined means there in verse 5. He actively destines something to happen. He didn't just choose you, but he had a goal in choosing you for that election and then he makes sure he brings that to pass. Verse 4 says it's all planned because he loves us. And what was the purpose? Verse 5, to adopt you as his children, to bring you into his family. That's probably not an idea that means a lot to many of us unless you're an orphan Being a member of a family is something we mostly take for granted, maybe even don't appreciate. But to be in a family, there's a wonderful security and identity that comes from being a member of a family, knowing who you are, knowing where you fit, knowing that your family will love you and accept you and be there for you however much you disappoint them. If there's that sort of feeling, that security from an earthly family, how much more is that feeling of acceptance and security and love from your heavenly father when you're part of his family and he's adopted you? And not just because he loves us. Here's another reason God chose us. It's there in verse 6. He chose us to show off how good his grace is. So verse 6 says, He predestined us to be adopted to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In verse 8, it's the riches of grace that are lavished on us. That's big, a big grace, wonderful and rich and complete. And God loves to graciously choose undeserving people because it shows how rich his grace is. The more grace he shows, the more people will praise him, will praise his grace and the more glory God receives. 
That's why he chooses us, even though we don't deserve it. Uh, He loves it when people praise him for his grace. And the the essence of that gift, the the, the core of that gift, that grace, is seen in verse 7. What has he given us? In Jesus we have redemption through his blood. Paul's already given us one picture of what God does, adoption, he makes us his children, but here's another one that describes the same thing, redemption. We don't use that word in English very much, but redemption involves buying something back, like buying a slave, you redeem a slave. Or at the pawnbrokers, if you put your TV in because you need money for a bill, If you want your TV back, you have to redeem it. You have to pay money. In this case, God has bought us back. He sets us free. And the price he pays is the blood of his son. The acceptable punishment for our rebellion is the death of his son in our place. And once that price is paid, uh, he forgives our sin. That's the next part of verse 7 the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So there's another picture. Forgiveness, he wipes the slate clean, removes the barrier, makes us friends and it's all through Jesus. In fact, everything, did you notice that? Everything we've seen so far comes through Jesus. Verse 3 says, Every spiritual blessing comes in Christ. We've been chosen in Christ. God predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ. God's glorious grace is only freely given to us in the one he loves. Grace only comes through Jesus. And in verse 9, the mystery of God's will was purposed in Christ. God's the, the means, the agent of, of, for achieving all of these plans. But he's not only the agent for achieving these plans. Verse 10 says he's the the goal of the plan as well. So verse 10, God's plans are to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's big plan. Everything submitting to Jesus as king. That's God's end game. So Jesus is the train that takes us to the end And he's the train station at the end as well. Jesus being king of everything, that's God's big plan. So verse 12 says, God does it all in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. That's your purpose in life, bringing glory to God, to Jesus. That's what you're here for. What's the meaning of life? to be for the praise of God's glory. That's where the world is headed. That's why things happen the way they do in your life, so that you can cause people to praise God's glory, so that you might be for his praise. Whatever you do, all things are to be done for his glory. That's why he brings sufferings and trials. So that as you trust, so that your trusting and patient response can cause other people to give glory to God. 
That's why he gives you non-Christians who ask you those tricky questions so that you can be ready to give a reason for your hope and give glory to God. That's why sometimes people persecute you or make fun of you so that in your gracious response you can cause them to recognise God's love and grace in you. Everything in your life works out in conformity, fitting in with God's will so that all of us might be, might exist, might live for the praise of his glory. But did you notice the little qualifier, that little word there in verse 12? Up until now there's been no distinction between Jew and Gentile, there's no us and you. It's it's all we. Until we get to verse 12 that says, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Oh, so now it's clear he's thinking about the Jews, his fellow Jews. The Gospel goes to the Jews first and then it goes to the Gentiles. But does, does that mean that everything he's been talking about till now is only about the Jews and is not related to the Gentiles? You can imagine the Gentile faces falling when they hear that. You mean we don't have all of that? We don't have an identity and a purpose and a future and an inheritance? But gloriously, joyously, look look what comes next. Verse 13. uh, We who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the logic of what Paul's saying is that everything that's available to the Jews is also available to the Gentiles. You too. God's sharing the inheritance. Everything Paul has mentioned is for the Gentiles as well because they've been included in Christ too. They're connected to Jesus as well. They get the whole inheritance. Chosen, predestined, adopted, grace, redemption, forgiveness, every blessing is connected to Christ and so the Gentiles get it all as well because they're connected to Christ. And how did that happen? How did the sharing of the inheritance happen? The Gentiles heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. So when you tell someone the gospel, you're sharing your inheritance. And what's the proof that they've got the inheritance? Well, it's the same proof God gave in the book of Acts. He gives his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to all people. It's the seal of his ownership on you. He's the deposit that guarantees the full inheritance is still coming. To see what it says halfway through verse 13? Having believed you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And that our, that us, well that's everyone now. We understand it's Jew and Gentile. God himself living in us gives the Gentiles confidence that they too have a share in the inheritance. 
It's an inheritance that only came as those first Jewish Christians shared their inheritance by proclaiming the gospel, the word of truth. And so what that means is you're sitting here today only because another Christian shared his inheritance with you, if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, perhaps it was your parents or a friend or someone at uni or a Sunday school teacher. If you're one of God's people, it's because the Jews shared their inheritance with us Gentiles. And so that's obviously relevant for us here in Ashfield, isn't it, with its incredible multiculturalism. If the Jews can cross the the boundaries to share the inheritance with Gentiles, then we should cross boundaries too. We should cross boundaries of education, cross boundaries of upbringing or social class, cross boundaries of age, cross boundaries of culture or language or appearance. God has elected people from every tribe and nation and tongue and it's our job to tell the word of truth to them so that having believed, God will give them the Holy Spirit too, the seal, the deposit that guarantees their inheritance. And once that happens, it means once they're part of our family, we should treat them as family. We should be committed to them, even though they're different, even though they speak differently or look differently, they're still family. Because God's plan is to bring all things together under Jesus. That's what he's already done now that he's made us into one family. And so we need to live that out. We need to work at being family, work at growing our unity and our love and our fellowship. Grow, work hard at listening and patiently serving each other because that's what family does. Well, let me finish with one final idea. We're not talking about something trivial, something small. Patiently, humbly working at unity and love despite differences, uh, including people, sharing the inheritance, it seems weak, it seems unimportant, insignificant, it seems hard work. But the truth is when we do that it is culture shaping, it's earth shattering, it's visionary, it's futuristic. We're actually creating a little window into the future, into eternity here as a family, as a church family. Let me show you what I mean. Over in chapter 3, Paul talks about his job of revealing this mystery, uh, a mystery there in verse 6. We looked at it earlier. The mystery is that through the Gospels the Gentiles are heirs together, sharers together in the promise. So God's plan has always been about Jew and Gentile sharing the inheritance and, God, and Paul brings that plan together. Uh, verse 8, This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. And then have a look at, listen to verse 10. Here's God's big plan. Now, God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's God's plan, that through the church his wisdom is seen in the heavens. The church is God's visible, 
earthly expression of his wisdom. The church, Jews and Gentiles, heirs together, male and female, heirs together, young and old, heirs together, Aussie, Chinese, Korean, Nepalese, Scottish, African, Dutch, Belgian, we're all heirs together. That's God's big plan. Our church is a little advertising billboard to the heavens, a little window into God's plans for eternity when everything reaches its fulfilment to bring everything together under Jesus. Is that what people see when they look at us? I hope so. That's the opportunity we have as we accept one another, as we consider others before ourselves, as we humbly, lovingly, generously share our inheritance, as we treat each other as family and as we do it all for the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this description of your amazing plans. We'd never come up with a plan like this. But we thank you that in Jesus every spiritual blessing is ours, even to us Gentiles. We deserve nothing but your judgement and yet you give us grace and mercy and forgiveness. You adopt us into your family. You give us your Holy Spirit, Jesus in us. We thank you for this great family, this large family from all over the world that's so different. Please help us to see it, to love it, to treat each other as family that the world might give you glory. Amen.